Now let's pray. Father, we are just grateful that we have a solid rock in Christ. That through the ups and downs, the ins and outs of life, we can stand because we have a Savior who is working all things for our good and we have an eternity with you in the new heavens and the new earth to look forward to. And we can look into the challenges of life that come and, and we can confidently say, come what may. Because we have firm confidence and trust and hope in you. So I pray that that confidence and that hope would be strengthened this morning as we peel back the curtain just a little bit to get a sneak peek into where we will be spending eternity. And that this would energize our hearts for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, what if I told you that I could predict what your future might look like. So, you say, well, why not? Let's give it a shot, see what you got. So you and I walk up to my office, and I pull out from my desk my future-predicting crystal ball. And I peer into my crystal ball to see your potential future. And as I look into the ball, I see that you might marry the man or woman of your dreams. And I take another look, and as I'm looking, I see that you might land the job of your dreams. I take another look, and I see a beach house in Florida, and I see all of your children becoming Christians and marrying Christian spouses and having seven children each and filling your home with grandchildren. Some of you can relate. And I see as I peer even closer something else. The red team is going to win the Super Bowl tonight, right? Right? Are you feeling any sort of hope or encouragement or anything like that in my future predicting powers? No. No. Why not? Because every single one of those predictions came with a little word, might. Might. I really didn't tell you anything you don't already know. Those all, those, all of those things might happen. And see, that, that's really the reality of, of life. The future is uncertain. The future is unpredictable. And the reality of life is that while some things might go our way, many things won't. 
There will be disappointment in life. There will be suffering in life. There will be loss in life. And if our hope is in what might happen in the future, that we think will make things better, we are going to be ultimately disappointed. If our hope, if our hope is ultimately our circumstances changing, our circumstances going the way that we want them to go, we're inevitably going to face disappointment. And this is actually one of the greatest um, struggles that I have personally seen as I have done ministry, particularly with young people. The, the, the sky is the limit when you're in college, right, or when you're in high school. The sky is the limit. The world is your playground. The future looks bright. You've got these high expectations for how things are going to go in your life. And oftentimes those things don't work out. And in order to avoid the pitfalls that can happen to any of us of disappointment, discouragement, and unmet expectations, if you will, we have to have our hopes set on something that actually transcends what's going on in the here and now, right? Something that is solid, something that is sure, something that we can count on no matter what comes. So this morning, from, from Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, we're going to see that hope. We're going to see that God will restore all things to the way that they were originally intended to be in the end. So that we will fix our eyes on our future hope and be able to endure um, whatever disappointment comes now. Okay? So turn with me to Revelation chapter 22, if you have not already. As we enter into this book, we meet the Apostle John. The Apostle John has been exiled to the small island of Patmos off of modern-day Turkey. He's been exiled there for preaching the gospel. The Romans wanted him out. And as he's there on the island, God sends him through an angel a vision of the last days, of the end times, of what is going to come in the future. And he sends this message of hope, really, back to seven churches in Asia Minor that he has ministered to. These churches, some of them are straying, some of them are wayward, but some of them are experiencing suffering for their faith. And unfortunately, while while we can't walk through um, everything that John lays out um, through the help of the angel this, this morning, where he ends up is where we are going to focus. And he ends up in the new heavens and the new earth. He gets a special sneak peek into what God's plan is to restore all things. And it's in this vision of the end that we see where our hope lies now. And we're going to see this two ways. Number one, in Eden restored and in man's relationship with God restored. So look with me at Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, 
through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So we open up with this scene in the new Jerusalem, the capital city of the new earth. And and John points out for us three things. We have the throne of God, we have the river of the water of life, and we have the tree of life. We've got a literal throne with God sitting on it. We've got a literal river, and we've got literal trees. And God is literally there. The throne is occupied by God himself and the Lamb. The river of life is flowing with pure, unpolluted, life-giving water. The trees are bearing fruit, abundant fruit. Not, not, Not trees that we have today that only produce in certain seasons, but these trees are producing fruit year round and all kinds of different fruit. And by the way, I know the text says tree, but this is more of a, 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 the idea of an orchard, a collective tree or trees. And the leaves on these trees are something special. The leaves on these trees, he says, give healing to the nations. Now, obviously, there is not um, sickness There is not um, pain. There is nothing for these nations to be healed from. But this is more of the idea of health giving, right? We don't just eat fruit to get better when we're sick. We eat fruit to stay healthy when we're not. Similar idea here. It is for the health and the life of the nations. The river of life and the tree of life will sustain God's people in eternity their life-giving power coming from God himself. They're flowing from the throne. He, God in eternity, is still sustaining life. So, so here's what we got, okay? Here's what we've got. We've got God dwelling in eternity with his people. We've got a river, and we've got trees. In fact, the tree of life What place does this sound strangely familiar to? The Bible opens in the opening chapters in Genesis 2, beginning in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. See, see this description of the New Jerusalem sounds a lot like Eden. It sounds a lot like 
the way things were supposed to be in the very beginning. And this is really, as we see the bookends of the Bible in this paradise, this is really the story of Scripture. Right? You have in the beginning God creating everything and it was good, including mankind. And he was dwelling with, with man. But in Genesis 3, something terrible happens and sin enters the world. A sa- a Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes and he deceives the first two humans, Adam and Eve, causing them to disobey, leading them to disobey God's one commandment, don't eat of the fruit of the tree. And so God curses the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. God curses the woman. God curses her childbearing. God curses her relationship with her husband. God curses the man. God curses the ground. He curses, he curses the world from that point on and even today is under a curse. And all of a sudden, the paradise that God had created is cursed. Nature is cursed. Adam and Eve's ability to represent God as his image bearers and exercise dominion is cursed. They are kicked out of the garden and thus begins the vicious cycle of death, destruction, and darkness that we have have been in ever since. And the question really burning in the minds of God's people ever since that time has been, when is God going to make things right? When is God going to restore things to the way that they were meant to be? And God gives us the answer to that here in Revelation 22. Now what he doesn't tell us is how this is going to happen. But God actually gives us a glimpse of that as he's giving the curses in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3.15, God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, it's through the seed of the woman, Jesus, who would come, that God was going to make all things right. Jesus overcame evil. Jesus overcame the power of the deceiver. Jesus is going to lift the curse. And throughout the rest of scripture, we see God's plan to do this laid out. Jesus came and he died for humanity so that we, all of us, our souls and our bodies could be redeemed. And so that we could fulfill our God-given mandate as image bearers to exercise dominion for him. God will conquer Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist in the last day. And we read that in Revelation 20. And he'll cast them into the lake of fire. And he will usher in new heavens and a new earth where sin and the curse are no longer. That's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is the restoration of all things, including you and I. And we see the consummation of that in Revelation 22. And now we, as God's people, wait. Right? Paul says in Romans eight nineteen and 23, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's how the story will, will ultimately end. God is going to restore all things. It's not going to end with everything being burned up and replaced. God is going to remodel. He's going to renew. He's going to restore. This is not the restoration of a couple of things. This is the restoration of all things, right? This is better than a Karen Kingsbury novel. This is better than a Hallmark movie. This is better than Hoosiers or It's a Wonderful Life or the Chiefs of 15 years ago versus the Chiefs of today, right? This is the best redemption and restoration story ever. God doesn't just selectively restore a few things. He restores all things. Back to the way they were supposed to be. So that the curse on creation that brings droughts, famines, tornadoes, hurricanes will be reversed. The curse on humanity and the wars, the murders, the thefts, the discouragement, the abandonment, the hopelessness will all be reversed. The curse on our relationship with God, while restored now, will be fully restored in the future. So we experience um, loss for our faith today, maybe. I have a friend who took a job in Yuma, Arizona, um, in a plant. It was a desk job. And in his first week there, his, his boss walks in and he sees a Bible sitting on his desk and immediately says, that's going to be a problem. He had moved his entire family from California to the very southern tip of Arizona. And he couldn't stay there because of that. Many of you have maybe experienced persecution like that. That act of Satan will not have the final say. We experience hostility in our culture. Christianity is not PC anymore. It's not politically correct. And the way that Satan works through our culture, who are the mission field, not the enemy, but the way that he works through them will not have the final say. God will restore all things. We have church members put on hospice, right? As the curse ravages their bodies. And when they close their eyes for the final time on this earth, they will open them in the presence of their Savior, awaiting a restored creation. The curse will not have the final say on their bodies. Amen? Nature will be redeemed. I believe that the new earth will be this earth remodeled and restored. Our bodies will be redeemed. I believe that you'll have the same body in eternity that you have now. Some of you are saying, great, right? But it will be your body in its most peak, glorified, perfected state. You know, whether that's when you were 25 or whatever. Some of you said that sounds really young. For some of you, that sounds really old. Your body will be perfect. 
it will be restored. Our relationships will be redeemed. There will be no more conflict. There will be no more fights. There will be no more bitterness. There will be no more jealousy. There will be no more passions waging war within us. Our relationships will be restored. Societies will be redeemed. As, as we see in, in these verses, and even in verses in chapter 21, there are nations in, on the new earth. Societies will be redeemed. Nations will be redeemed. Every inch of creation will be restored. God is going to win in the end. The curse has, has touched all of us in some shape or form, but it will not have the final say. God is going to restore everything in the end. The curse will be gone and we'll be restored. Look with me at verse three. Not only will will all of creation be restored, but our relationship with God will be restored. But the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. God will be ruling and reigning. He will be there. And now, what is God going to be doing as he's ruling and reigning? I think we get two clues to this, even in the verses that we are reading. What's flowing out of the throne? the river of life, right? God is still sovereignly sustaining life for all of eternity. And notice in verse three, what God's, the presence of God's throne is contrasted with. No longer will there be anything accursed. God in eternity will still be ruling and reigning righteously, Sustaining and maintaining righteousness. Evil will be no more. And it'll stay that way. And notice who John mentions. His servants. His servants will worship him. Now this doesn't mean that it's going to be an eternal church service where we're singing and praising God for all of eternity. We will be doing that. But we'll be doing lots of other things. As we're going to read later in chapter 5, we're actually described as reigning with him. Everything we do for God will be worship. And it's really the same now, isn't it? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In heaven, we'll be doing the same thing. We'll be living for God's glory perfectly and completely. We'll be doing many of the things that we do today just without the presence of sin. We will worship him. And that ought to give us hope too, right? Is anybody frustrated that sometimes you can't seem to even do the simplest things without sinning? or being tempted to sin, it's not always going to be that way. 
It's not always going to be that way. The flesh will be renewed. Our souls will be renewed. We will live without sin someday. But it gets better. Look at me at verse 4. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will see his face. Now we get a glimpse in Exodus 33 of God's relationship to Moses. And in, in chapter 33 and verse 18, God, or I'm sorry, Moses asks God to show him his glory. Show me your glory. And God responds this way in verse 20. But he said, in God, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. In verse 23 it says, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, does God have a face? No, this, this is a way of describing relationship with God. There will be an intimacy that we have with God. We will be in his presence. We will be with him. What happened to Adam and Eve after they sinned? They get kicked out of the garden. They get kicked out of God's presence. What about for the people of Israel? There was a temple So God was there, he was with them, but what was there between them and God? There was a huge veil. Because of the presence of sin, our humanity and God's relationship, there's been a divide, a a presence divide. That will be gone away in eternity. We will see his face. And additionally, his name will be on our foreheads. Now, now, this doesn't mean that we'll literally have God or Yahweh or Jesus on our foreheads. A, a name is a represented, representation of a person. A name is a representation of identity. If your last name is Shoemaker, what does that probably say about what your ancestors did for a career? They made shoes. A name is a representation of who you are. Now, what did God tell Adam? Well, what did, what did God say in Genesis 1.26? Let us make man in our image. We were created to be a reflection of God to the rest of the world. We were created to be imagers. So when he says their name my name will be on their foreheads. He's saying that they are going to reflect me and who I am like they were created to. Our creation as image bearers, while we are still image bearers now, will be fully restored and redeemed in the future. His name will be on our foreheads. His identity will be reflected in us as it was intended to. And we're going to return to that point in a moment. But let's read verse 5 before we do. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There's no more night. There's no more need for the sun. 
there's no more need for the moon. Because God, the effulgent glory of God, is filling creation. It's filling creation. And darkness is no more. The light will never shut off. Well, I think he's speaking literally here. I think there's also something that he's trying to communicate symbolically here. Oftentimes, especially in the Gospel of John, there's a contrast between light and darkness. And we see this clearly in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, John says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we have a contrast here between life and death, between wickedness, righteousness, between good and evil, light and dark. So what we're seeing here is not only the absence of darkness, the absence of night, but the absence of evil in the full consuming presence of God and his light. Can you imagine what life would be like today if people didn't sin? Can you imagine what your, what our society would look like if people didn't sin? Can you imagine what your relationships would look like if you didn't sin? Married couples, can you imagine what your marriage would look like if you didn't sin? This will be a sinless world. This will be a world full of light. And all of the blessings and the benefits and the glory that comes with that. Darkness is gone. And John finishes this section. He finishes this vision of the new heavens and the new earth. He finishes the book of Revelation. And he really wraps up the whole story of Scripture with seven words at the end of verse 5. And they will reign forever and ever. So his servants, his people, you and I, will reign in eternity. We will, we will rule. So we have in verses 1 through 3, let's put the pieces together. We have a restored Eden where we have a restored creation and us dwelling in the presence of God. We have a restored relationship with God. There's no longer the divide. We can dwell with him. We have a restored role as his image bearers. His name will be on our foreheads. And we have a restored role exercising dominion. In Genesis 1.26, not only did God say, let us make man in our image, what does he say? And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the, of the sky, over all of creation. Everything in the end is restored. That is the end of the story.
forever and ever. God will finish what he started. He's going to finish what he started. He's going to bring Eden back. He's going to bring us back. And and the question for all of us is, if this is God's story and this is how it ends, where do we fit into that story? Right? Now, now this is a, a message of hope. This is a message that even though all things might not pan out the way that we are hoping they will now, we have a solid, unshakable confidence that God is going to win out in the end. The sky is not falling, if you will. And that ought to be encouraging. But some in here might feel encouragement by that. Some of you might be feeling encouragement and you really shouldn't. Because what's absent from this picture? Evil. What's absent, absent from this picture? Sinners. Right? Unredeemed sinners. There will be nothing accursed in this city. And for some of you, that includes you. And what was meant as a message of encouragement to God's people is a warning to you. It's a warning that your future is not in Revelation 21 and 22 but it's a chapter earlier in chapter 20 where you have the condemned standing before the great white throne and being cast into the lake of fire. And if that's you, I want to remind you that this is a future prophecy. That can change. That can change. But there's only one way. There's only one way. He says in, John says in verse 8 of chapter 21, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Does that describe you in any way? Faithless, Sexually immoral, liar, an idolater. The key to having your future be in these chapters and not in chapter 20 is by turning from those things, by abandoning those things, by rejecting those things. But where do you turn after that? Okay, I hope I get into the new heavens and the new earth. No. There's a way. There's only one way. And that is through the man who died on the cross to reverse the curse and make all things right. And he died so that you could be forgiven. And he was righteous and offered himself as a perfect sacrifice so that you could stand before God completely right. Not because of your own works, but because of his. And if you will look to him hanging upon the cross of course he's no longer there but if you trust in his sacrifice you can be forgiven 
you can be right and your future can lie in what we're studying this morning and not in chapter 20. And then what's, what I'm about to say becomes true of you. If many of you, this should be encouraging. This should be encouraging. Many of us will get to experience this firsthand. This is not a maybe. This is not me looking into my imaginary crystal ball and saying this might happen. This is God giving his word and he never goes back on it. We will live someday in a creation, I believe this creation, that is completely removed from everything that causes pain, everything that causes suffering, everything that causes discouragement, everything that causes loss. Every problem with our world today will be no more. And we will be with our Savior and our God for all of eternity. So even if there's a drought this year and the crops don't do well, God has a plan to restore creation. And we don't have to be crushed by that because our hope isn't in that. Even if the curse is ravaging your body, God will have the final say over your body. Even if you've lost things for your faith in Jesus, this world is not your home. You have hope. Even if you have expectations that aren't being met, life's not going the way that you thought it would. You're not in your career yet. Or your parents didn't live as long as you thought they would. You can have hope. There is a land beyond. See, unbiblical hope really is dependent on our present circumstances going well. Um, The hope of unbelievers is dependent on that. Things are okay as long as things are okay. But the hope of Scripture, what makes all the difference is two little words, even if. Even if everything's not okay, I'm okay. Because my confidence and my hope is not in everything being okay, but it's in a God, my God, who loves me and who has a future for me with him in eternity. And he has a good plan for my life now. In the Hall of Faith, in Hebrews chapter 11, The author lists several stalwarts of the faith. Abel, Enoch. And he gets to Abraham, the man of faith, in verse 8, and his wife, Sarah. And he says this, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, 
living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, being Abraham, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would, have op- they would have had opportunity to return. And here it is. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So God is restoring all things. And he'll bring us to this city someday. And how much better a a source of hope that is than knocking on wood, crossing our fingers, hoping things are going to go okay now. We can count on it. We can count on it. God has given us his word and he doesn't go back on it. This is how the story ends and what a story it is. Let's pray. Father, we do just thank you for how you will restore everything to the way that it was supposed to be. That Satan and the curse will not have the final say. But you will. And Lord, while you are sovereign over our lives now and we place our hope in you to direct us now and Lord, we just ask that you would root and ground that hope in you and in your plan for us for the future, no matter what happens now. And I pray that if there's anybody in here who is experiencing loss, I know we have some even just in our body, um, that they would feel the encouragement of Revelation 22, 1 through 5, and that their hope would be in you and for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen.